delighted to welcome everyone to this latest episode of Evidence into Action, our Education Endowment Foundation podcast. This podcast is going to focus on high quality talk. High quality talk is part of the fabric of teaching and learning, but it's not without its debates. It's not without its issues and challenges. So we want to explore this whole area. And as ever, we've got a brilliant range of guests. So we have, firstly, our expert, Professor Neil Mercer, who's worked for a number of years in this particular area. He's director of Oracy Cambridge, um, and a brilliant expert, so really excited about talking to Neil. And then we have our brilliant school leaders. So we're going to speak to Nikki Hemming, Deputy Head Teacher at Clifton Primary School, and Simon Cox, Director of Blackpool Research School and a Maths Teacher, um, and, and hear from them about how they've applied high-quality talk, what they've done to develop that in their classrooms and schools and any challenges they faced and obviously kind of tips and insights um, that we can glean from this. And, and I think this podcast will give us a real sense of teaching and learning and high quality practices, but also it will look at the big picture of trying to do a good thing well um, in schools. Um, my co-host, um, who's been a co-host before, is the wonderful Kirsten Mulholland. Kirsten, introduce yourself. Um, yeah, hi Alex. So um, I'm Kirsten Mulholland. I am an EEF associate for um, content and engagement with a particular interest in, in maths. Um, and when I'm not working for the EEF, I'm an assistant professor um, in at Northumbria University, mainly working in initial teacher education. And and one thing just to just to specify for our audience, um, Kirsten, is this isn't the first time you've kind of shared resources and insights around high quality talk, is it? So uh, one of my favourite blogs um, on the EF is about uh, about the debrief. So just talk a little bit about why this is an area you keep on coming back to. Yeah, so I started thinking about talk in my own classroom um, when I was working in primary schools um, in um, Upper Key Stage 2 classrooms, um, particularly in Year 5 when I first started working about this. But um, how I could, I suppose, make those kind of invisible processes that were going on in children's heads more visible to me and also I think to them so um, I started um, thinking about how I could encourage that and so yeah we, we looked at um, the debrief was one of the the ways that we did that so that was encouraging children to reflect upon their learning and, and kind of try to to identify what went well what helped them what was challenging why that was challenging and what they'd learned about themselves as learners so that was where I started thinking about this in in, in maths lessons in particular. Brilliant, thank you. And I think that that level of precision around it might be one teaching approach, like the debrief. I think we'll span in, in this podcast all the way to that bigger picture of of what does you know what are the implications on a national basis for talk as well. So, so lots to get our teeth into. So let's get going um, and first um, speak to our opening guest. So I'm delighted to welcome my first guest. It's Professor Neil Mercer, Emeritus Professor of Education, Director of Oracy Cambridge. Um, and Neil has been a huge um, advocate for high quality talk and Oracy and an expert for a number of years. And I know Kirsten and I, we've, we've followed his work. So uh, Neil, delighted to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and particularly your interest in development in this area? Yes, thanks for inviting me today. Um, yeah, I'm a psychologist, essentially, uh, and my interest in the whole of my career really has been on the relationship between language and thinking. Um, I, I've been particularly interested in 
the relationship between language and thinking when it comes to school-aged children's development and teachers' role in helping that development. And I think it's because I was inspired as a, as a postgraduate by the work of people like Douglas Barnes and Jerome Bruner, who were real pioneers in this field. And uh, I thought this is an applied area of science. I didn't want to be sort of, you know, doing abstract experiments in a psychological laboratory. I wanted to get into the real world and education seemed a good place to go. Not least because I've been aware of the importance of spoken language in my own education uh, and how, how I realised how differently my friends and, and I use language in the classroom or were expected to use it from the way we used it outside the classroom and and how that could sometimes be quite problematic so that's that's really the background and then um, I'm the director of the center called Oracy Cambridge which is one of the centers at uh, the college Hughes Hall in Cambridge which is one of several centers that have been set up to create a bridge between research and practice a two-way bridge so not just informing practitioners about research but also finding out what practitioners are interested in so that it informs what research is done. It's so interesting to hear about um, the work that's taken place at Oracy Cambridge. Can can you tell us a little bit about um, the benefits and what, what research tells us about the benefits of um, talk for pupils? Yeah, um, one of the things I think that's become clear from research in recent years is how closely language development is related to cognitive development, that is to development of thinking skills. And I feel much more confident talking about this nowadays than I would have done some years ago, even though I have been talking about it for a while. Um, this is because there's been a sort of shift in, uh, in developmental psychology um, to show that, that, that the, the language, the capacity to learn and use language is much more intrinsically tied up with, with the capacity to think in a, in a human way, with the nature of human intelligence. And that it's through being born into a world in which people are making sense of that world through the language they're using, that children make sense of it themselves. So it's not simply a case of being born into the world and looking at it and thinking, oh, what's going on? You're hearing people make sense of it. And one of the key things, which comes from the work of Vygotsky, who was a, a Russian psychologist back in the early part of the the 20th century, um, is that it's through reasoning with other people, through thinking with other people, that children learn to think alone. And, and it's through having reasoned discussions with other people that you become a reasonable or a reasoning person yourself. Uh, and without that sort of stimulus, um, you, you wouldn't get that kind of development. So it's a crucial change, I think, in the way we see uh, the role of language in, in early life and that children really need to be given the rich experience of language in their early lives so that they develop these individual thinking skills as well as communication skills. The two things are intrinsically kind of related. Can I just follow up in terms of, you, you talked a little bit earlier about um, the different talk between yourself and your friends um, and the expectations within the classroom and then that different language. Can you just talk a little bit more about that um, and, and, and some of those, the nuances of that difference and, and, and what that means. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really was quite a strong influence, I think, on my on my career direction. Um, one of the things that happened to me was uh, when I moved to, when I started secondary school, we moved from 
uh, Lancashire where I'd gone to primary school uh, to Cumbria, West Cumbria. Uh, and those are two bits of the Northwest and they might to most people sound like more or less the same place. But actually the regional accents and dialects are very different. Um, they're not the same one. And uh, my experience on move, I've been considered a fairly able child at primary school uh, and a good reader and things like that, only to find when we moved to uh, West Cumbria that when I read alone in class, they all laughed at me because they thought my accent was funny. And I was told I'd make a perfect um, uh, comedian because I sounded like George Formby, you know, or somebody like that. Um, and, and this was a surprise to me because to me, they sounded pretty weird. <laughs> you know, I, they would say at the end of a school day, um, they'd say, I as gone yam now, meaning I'm going home now. While in Lancashire, we say I'm going warm. Uh, and so there were lots of differences like that. And then I realized that uh, in school, you weren't meant to use any of those dialect words. You were meant to use a different kind of standard English. We, we got taught about Cumbrian dialect and its, its relationship to Norse, the Norse language and, and Celtic language, which was fascinating, but it was definitely not to be used in class. And so I then realized as well that, that in each subject, there were different domains of language being used. And there were vocabularies you were meant to use. You were discussing Shakespeare, which were very different if you were discussing, you know, scientific, um, the elements or, or, or scientific experiments. And so it was that kind of realization. And also that teachers themselves seemed to vary a lot in how clearly they could explain things to me. And I don't, I realized it wasn't any accident that I was getting better results in biology than, than physics because I think I got, I had a much better teacher. And, and, and it all made me start to think about these kind of things in a way that, that influenced the kind of degree I wanted to do and the kind of research I then wanted to go on and do afterwards. Uh, it makes me think, Neil, of a, a couple of um, reflections from previous podcasts. So um, a couple of podcasts ago, we spoke to Professor Victoria Murphy, and, and that was about EAL multilingual children. And yeah. a point that really struck me, she talked about this notion of translating the curriculum for those peoples, but that every people needed that active translation. And that, that's really stuck with me since, because we can have these kind of often blunt labels and, and, and lack nuance, whereas this notion of teachers translating and that be part of the effectiveness, and also the implication that that translation, there's also different languages in the classroom and we need to navigate those differences. And, and often teachers don't quite feel confident about where those boundaries might be and about the explicitness about you know language I, I think some of the challenges um you know we kind of talk about are some of those labels what what do you think so we have a focus on supporting disadvantaged peoples trying to break that link at the you know our ef core purpose about breaking the link between parental income and and school outcomes and so yeah. what's your reflection on the implications for peoples from lower socioeconomic backgrounds with this talk and and there might be some nuance there in terms of that being a bit of a blunt label that doesn't quite get to the to the reality of it yeah good point and uh, you're quite right it's a very blunt categorization uh, it kind of works to some extent but it can be a bit misleading um because we're really we re the thing we're really interested in is not whether they're socioeconomically deprived well we are interested in that and nobody should be but we're actually most interested in whether they're linguistically and socially deprived 
and that can be some children can be in that situation who are from relatively affluent families and yeah. there are yeah, some yeah, children yeah. from very poor families who are not so you know we've got to bear that in mind i think what we're concerned about is that some children are clearly coming to school with less access to a rich language experience at home and because of as i mentioned before we now know that language experience is such a shaping influence on cognitive development this is a crucial issue i mean research going back a while showed that if you just go into a preschool child's home and you measure the amount of talk they're involved in at home just the amount you can make quite a good prediction about how well they'll be doing at school when they're 13 or 14 and if you look at what that talks like you can even make it better and as i say to like the pgce students at cambridge um that's a horrible thought isn't it that these these kids destinies are set you know academically even before they get to your classroom i said that would be horrible except for one thing that they've got one second chance and that's you you know it's a horrible responsibility but i'm afraid if you, you're the only chance to transcend that destiny you know and and i think there is no doubt um i know talking to to teachers recently uh, especially early years teachers that the lockdown effects have actually made the difference between some children's language experiences even more severe so that some children have been at home the parents have been at home too uh their parents have ended up doing a bit of homeschooling uh they've had a lot more time to talk to their children than ever and the kids come back and wow the teachers think oh he's doing really well you know um other kids have been at home and it doesn't sound like they've had that at all and and I think that just illustrates in a very poignant and, and horrible way, really, how important that language experience outside school is and how much schools really need to treat this as a priority. What, one of the things I think teachers, it might be a challenge, it might not be a challenge, but we'll often use different language. So we might use academic talk, we might use dialogic talk, oracy. What's your take? Do, why, for example, have you chosen oracy? Is there something distinguishing about that that you think is particularly helpful? Do you mean the concept, the whole? Yeah, yeah, the, and, and the words we're using with teachers because they oh, might yeah, think, oh, is that a different thing? Yeah, well, oracy, as you you will know, of course, is what's known as a neologism, meaning a word that's being deliberately made up, and it was made up by uh, Professor Andrew Wilkinson, who, who was at UEA uh, when I met him when I was uh, in, a lot younger, and um, he he invented the word because he wanted spoken language to be given the same status as literacy and numeracy, so he picked a sort of Latinate word that made made it up because speaking and listening. You know, and in other languages too, it can get reduced. It sounds like chat, you know, and you don't talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no equivalent rough word for reading and writing as chat, is there? So it yeah. kind of diminishes its value. So the reason that oracy has come to be used, though it's not used yet much in, in, in the English um, education policy documentation, uh, it is used in Wales and Scotland. Um, I think it's because it gives this kind of status to spoken language, which it deserves and certainly hasn't had, as as Wilkinson was pointing out back then in the sixties and seventies. You you talked really powerfully um, just now about the the crucial role of teachers in mm. in providing these opportunities for for children to to develop language and, and to engage in that high quality talk. Can you tell us a bit more about what teachers can do in the classroom to to promote that? Yeah, there's there's two things teachers can do basically. Um, what one is they can manage the way they use talk 
in their classroom and how talk's used in their classroom and treat that as as a crucial issue i mean talk's the main tool of a teacher's trade as uh, you know in any level of education if you stop talking things tend to stop um, and yet you can use it well or badly it's not something that is naturally everybody's good at as we know uh, that's the whole point um, so i think it's a case of being self-consciously aware of how you're using talk and managing it and for example one one clear example that research shows uh, is that a good teacher will create a balance in their classroom between having dialogue that is discussions whole class discussions with the students in which they're encouraging the students to express their ideas their misunderstandings say what they think uh, and, and and challenge and question each other's ideas um, there's a balance between that and instruction which is when you as the expert tell them clearly and explicitly what they need to know now there's been some confusion you know in people arguing at progressive and traditional kinds of teaching traditionalists saying oh they should just be sitting and listening to what i say and the progressive saying oh no they should be telling us what they want to know and both of those are crazy you know really extreme silly uh, yeah, choices yeah. people often reduce things to silly dichotomies when there isn't really any reason to do so the, the kind of teaching that works is, is is a sort of mixture of those two but not just a casual mixture a strategic mixture in which you do uh, listen to what the students uh, understand uh, and what they don't understand uh, perhaps on the basis of what you've been telling them in previous lessons and that gives you the insights into what you need to really tell them and they'll then know as well themselves that what they know and don't know and and often they won't know what they know uh, and what you won't know what they know until they try and put it into words i mean we've all had the experience of teachers that you've gone to teach a topic and you think oh i know all about this it's only when you try and explain it to someone else you realize i don't really understand it clearly at all and so if you can get the students to elaborate their ideas in these whole class discussions you'll learn a lot as a teacher about what they've picked up already and where the confusions are um, and then you will know yourself what you need to instruct them on. And in those lessons, you can say, keep quiet. I don't want any hands up. I want you to really listen now because this is what you need to know. And I think the evidence is quite clear that that's, those kind of things are, are what we know really works. It gets better results. It's, it's mentioned in the EEF's toolkits uh, that oral interventions get you six months progress. You know, I mean, I mean, who wouldn't want that? Yeah, I think I, what stood out for me, Neil, that point about the strategic nature of of those different types of talk and deploying them. And, and perhaps it's such an integral part of expert teaching that we take that for granted. And I think that's where we, we can't take that for granted. We need to foreground it. And, and you mentioned about um, kind of the the use of the term oracy to give it that prestige. And I, that, that stood out for me really clear. And actually, we need to use language to make this stand out so we can yeah. describe it, share it. You, know, you talked about uh, trainee colleagues, but actually really experienced teachers. We often, you can go into a classroom and and you can identify really high quality structured talk. Um, and, and perhaps the teacher isn't naming it as such, but they're doing it. And I think we benefit by having a shared language about the doing of it and how to improve it. Um, I, I've got a reflection um, building on that point about the importance of oracy. I, would you be able to just share your your thinking on potential future developments in terms of research in this area and policy? You talked about 
kind of again prestige and importance so that might indicate some of your views about what should happen next when it comes yeah. to both research and policy yeah uh, i mean one uh, just as a precursor to that just to say i, I mentioned about teachers managing talk in their classrooms uh, that's one of the things. The other thing, which relates to what you just asked, is the other thing I think teachers should be doing, schools should be doing, is teaching oracy skills, like they teach math skills, sporting sports skills, how to play games, uh, and how to how to analyse a novel, how to understand the map. They should be teaching oracy skills, and it should be part of the curriculum. So um, I really think that that that's one of the things I would expect and hope to see in future is obviously being made part of the curriculum not just something that is taken account of in every lesson in the way teachers operate but it's given that its own place and and i've been delighted to see you know that the, the welsh government has put oracy in its new curriculum we actually oracy cambridge we worked with them and provided a, a research review which under underpinned that change and it's there and in the project we have up in Scotland uh, with with the Wood Foundation up there in Aberdeen, a big project there, Education Scotland, uh, the government department, is in on it and they come along, you know, they're part of the, the whole process. So for them, Oracy is foregrounded in, in, in Wales and Scotland. It really is there. And, and I think in the, in the English, um, uh, the, the, the English curriculum and the, the, the English education system, uh, I think that hasn't really happened to the same extent. It's still a bit muddy and I don't see any reason why. And, and I, think, um, I think what we need to see in future is, is a policy change which makes it part and parcel of the priorities that teachers uh, make in, 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 when they're planning the lessons in school. I, I hear, like at the conference yesterday, I, I hear all the time of teachers saying, well, yeah, my colleagues are very quite supportive of our Oracy initiative, but they say, oh, I don't really have the time, you know, because we can't take a lesson out from, you know, anything else because, you know, the Ofsted will come around and we won't. So, you know, I think it's got, they've got to get the message, which certainly in other some other countries, um, you're, you're actually getting it, the sort of imperative is there that that it's something you can't you shouldn't be leaving out and so i think that that's the way policy needs to change and i think if we want policy to be evidence-based then as i've said the evidence is so clearly there that there's no good reason to ignore it really it's been so interesting to, to hear all of your your kind of thoughts on this and i think you've given a lot of practical advice and, and kind of food for thought um for teachers and and also in my role as a teacher educator about what what we need to do how we need to talk to to, to our pupils but also perhaps to student teachers to develop this i wonder if you could for anyone who's thinking about how to develop this in their own classroom context is there one simple piece of advice that you could offer perhaps that might support them to to make a start with this yeah, if I was saying there was one thing that a teacher could do, one, well, there was, you have to say just one, what, two, two, one is... <laughs> everyone, che every, everyone cheats, Neil, no one does. Yeah, okay, uh, well, well one thing is, bite the bullet and video yourself doing it, taking a lesson, it's horrible watching yourself, <laughs> but, but nevertheless, you will learn something, and then ask, you see, are you, are you doing any dialogue, are you providing clear instruction when you're doing it? Are you letting them express their views sometimes? Are you listening to them? Are you choosing just the usual people rather than spreading it around, you know, getting everybody involved? That's one thing. The other thing I would do is teach them how to work in a group because group work is really good. And when you see it working well, it's dynamite. 
and we know how to do it on on we've got videos showing how teachers can do this we've got a whole set of instructions that we provide um which is based on what good teachers have done as i've said not made up uh, and you can teach children how to use what's called exploratory talk which is the essence of a good discussion in any situation not just in the classroom uh, and you can teach them how to do it in a series of steps up to about six steps and it transforms the quality of group work and it gives them a life skill that they'll they'll be glad to have forever brilliant thank you neil and, and that was well worth uh, cheating and getting two points uh, i think both uh, equally valuable um really appreciate your time it was really interesting to navigate both that big picture of kind of status and oracy and policy but also you know that point there about that we can kind of codify this we can name this we can be precise about this we can look at different those different six steps we talked about and and i think the more precise and clear we can be for teaching colleagues the better we can do this and then we kind of move beyond those kind of yeah those lazy pretty clumsy dichotomies that, that you kind of um, blew out of the water so thanks again really appreciate your time um thanks you for coming on the podcast thank you Our next guest is Nikki Hemming. Uh, I'm really delighted to have Nikki. She's deputy head teacher at Clifton Primary School, uh, which is in Birmingham. Nikki, tell us a little bit about yourself and about Clifton Primary School too, please. Okay, so um, I'm actually deputy head at, here at the moment, but I, I actually started here uh, straight out of university. So I've been here about 28 years, seen oh, a wow. lot of changes. Um, seen the school grow from three to four form entries, so we're quite a large school. Um, and I just like to say the favourite part of my role, the best part, is um, being able to consistently look for how we can improve children's learning experiences, raise standards, make sure that they're motivated, confident, and becoming increasingly independent learners. That's that's what I enjoy about my role. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, your reflections around the importance and advantages of promoting high quality talk and maybe what prompted your focus on this with your school? Okay, so it's I think it's really important, especially for our school, because the majority of, of our children who start nursery and reception um, do so with very limited communication skills. Uh, so it's vital that we work on their talk um, and their language and their vocabulary um, because, you know, this is essential if children are going to go on to learn and acquire new knowledge. I mean, if you leave children with poor language, it leads to poor reading and writing and poor attainment and it can also lead to poor behaviour. Um, so since we started developing uh, improved talking lessons, we've seen quite a lot of positive changes. Um, children's learning behaviour is really improved. So when we carry out our, our observations, as you do, the atmosphere in lessons is great. The children are motivated, they're fully engaged, they're becoming more confident to ask questions um, because they want to, to do the best that they can. Um, they want to talk through their learning and they enjoy it. Um, you know, they like bouncing ideas off each other. And what's really changed for us is they're not afraid of getting things wrong because they're working more collaboratively together. 
Um, but at the same time, they're becoming more independent and really thinking about their learning. Um, so as part of our monitoring program, we regularly interview children about their learning and we're finding that they're remembering more and more. They're speaking more confidently um, in good quality sentences and using that uh, you know, more academic or subject specific language. And what we find is the children are now realizing that it's talk that's actually helping them to improve their learning. Um, and also for teachers, because children are verbalizing their learning, they're much clearer of the extent of the children's understanding. So, you know, they can adapt their teaching um, every day to the everyday needs. Um, but finally, in terms of like general behavior, we've seen a real improvement both inside and outside the classroom. And I think this is because like children are now expected to really listen to each other. Um, and they can actually do that now. And, uh, you know, they can, they're starting to communicate, to, they're starting to communicate their thoughts and feelings uh, better. So that's really had an impact on behaviour as well. In terms of um, why, what prompted us to start this? Well, there's two things really. Um, the first was in, when we had our last Ofsted in 2019, and they said, something like uh, the children are keen to uh, please and work hard in lessons. Uh, they listen to adults, they follow instructions carefully, they're compliant, but they don't routinely show independence in their learning. So we thought, right, well, there's got to be less teacher voice and more pupil voice in lessons. Um, so, you know, we'd, we'd already established things like all oh, the use of talk partners in lessons, but it wasn't enough. And with the interruption of COVID, um, to, that really impacted on their learning, together with the fact that lots of our children come in with limited communication skills. We needed to think further afield, you know, differently to how other schools were. It's really interesting. If I pick up um, that kind of critical speaking listening, and when we spoke to um, Neil, we talked about, he talked about kind of being more strategic and and breaking this down, codifying what speaking and listening is into steps, into roles and goals. Yes. And and I think that degree of specificity, what you're talking about, um, seems to be coming through as kind of the main message, that there are some mm -hmm. deliberate practices here. Um, and interesting about that point about um, behaviour and independence and, mm -hmm. and that critical thinking. So uh, one we might come back to. I, I think you've just described that, that real positive picture and that development and kind of some improvements that you're identifying and um, you mentioned Ofsted and, and kind of developments there. Often a bit like for Ofsted, we kind of, we focus on all the things that have gone right and all the things that have worked. Um, and we kind of shuffle away those things that didn't quite work or we found a bit more mm -hmm. difficult. Um, are there any reflections that you have in terms of the challenges of promoting high quality talk in the school and in classrooms? In terms of challenges, um, I think for us, it was... Um, to, to kind of be able to change the mindset of teachers because it's quite a big change to their to, to the way they teach in, in the classroom if you're going to develop high quality talk. Um, so you've got to really get behind the reasoning of it and explain that to them. You've got to convince them and you know have some evidence of the impact that it will have. Because when you first introduce it, 
um, you know, when, when teachers think, oh, right, we've got to focus on talk and discussion, it's like, well, oh, how's that going to work? It's going to lead to disruption, um, you know, and if there's there's talking going on, I won't have anything in the books to show for their learning, um, you know, and there's that, well, we haven't got time for that because we've got to do this and we've got to do that. So it it's got to, it's got to be, you know, you've got to really focus on commitment and time for it. So when you do start to implement it, you need to provide teachers with the right support, strategies, structures, so that they can see that, you know, oh, it is starting to be successful. You you mentioned um, there about um, the importance, I think, of, of, of high quality professional development, really, for, for teachers and for schools to, to support the development of, of high quality um, talk for learning um, in classrooms. I wondered if you could tell us about um, any support that you have been able to access. Um, for example, um, I know that you've been involved in um, the Oracy Project with St Matthew's um, Research School. Could you tell us a little bit about... Um, how that has helped to, to develop practice perhaps within your school? It's been focused on EYFS and we now have in place, so we had to put together a plan of action. We now have in place um, on the timetable specific times for teaching oracy skills and also the teachers have planned out an overview of what skills are going to be taught, when and why, and how they're going to do that. It has to really be structured. It can't just be an ad hoc situation. You've really got to be clear on that. Um, so, yeah, we've got, we've got that sorted, but it's also helped us to look at the, you know, the wider school, the, the older year groups as well. Uh, they've recommended lots of reading, uh, which has been great, um, you know, and especially with something that we've had to work on as well as part of high quality talk is the specific teaching vocabulary. So that is something that we've been able to work on right across the school as well. It's really interesting to hear you talking about the structured approach that you've you've, you've um, adopted, and that links really well with um, what Professor Neil Mercer was saying um, in, in his um, in his reflections as well about the importance of being really careful and purposeful, I suppose, about the ways in which we develop talk yeah. and the way that we're, we're supporting teachers to use that in the classroom. Um, I wonder, you, you mentioned about the strong emphasis on um, children in, in, in early years, and I wondered if you could um, tell me a little bit more about, um, I, I know that you mentioned also um, working with older children, but why that particular emphasis on, on children in the early years and, and, and beginning with pupils in that year group? I think it's absolutely key. You've got to get the solid foundations in those early years. And that's something we've realised, especially because the, the majority of our children come in with limited communication skills. Um, you, you know, it, it's for us, it's also... Uh, Let's not worry about writing when our children can't speak it yet. So that, you know, that's really why it's important for us in, in early years. We've got to get them to use a wider range of vocabulary. We've got to get them, um, you know, speaking in, in good quality sentences, excited to, be, to speak, excited to make contributions in their learning. And then, you know, as we develop that, then it's easier for the writing to, to follow on from that as well as the reading so that that's why it's really key for us here that's great to hear Nikki I think that point about the foundational nature 
of that early talk, that reasoning, that turn taking and and generating both the practice, but also that excitement and pleasure and kind of mm -hmm. the, the, the different roles and normalizing that um, sounds really powerful. Um, I, I think we'll inevitably have a future podcast with a focus on early years. It's um, for the EF, it's uh, a big area of development, what we think is crucially important for the reasons you described, that foundational value. So uh, look out for that future podcast. Okay. Gonna, it, it, it kind <laughs> of is. It kind of is. Um, so when I ask uh, arguably a simple question, but often it's, it's not so simple, we want to ask uh, uh, for one piece of final advice you'd want teachers and educators, early years educators, um, to consider, that advice to consider when thinking about how to develop high quality talk in their classrooms or setting? I think you've got to know why you're doing it. You've got to know the reasons for it. You've got to have that vision uh, of what you want it to look like at your school, how you want it to work like how you want it to work at your school and then you've got to devote the right amount of time and commitment to it and it's got to be from from all staff um, in the school um, and I think one thing that's really helped us along the way um, and we're still we're still on a journey we, we are nowhere near perfect we you know it's taken a long time to 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 get this kind of thing established um, but for us, it's it's allowing teachers to come together and um, you know and have that time to talk to each other, to share ideas, and to to kind of share what's ha been happening in their classroom. Yeah, that, I think that builds on um, what Neil was saying in terms of this specificity, this support, because actually high quality talk can just be part of the fabric of of really good teaching. So, and it's so common almost it's so part of our everyday experience that we can take that for granted and and, and you, you're describing that kind of stepping back reflecting mm. and kind of breaking that down and having that language Definitely. and support for for that improvement uh, and, and also uh, final point just congratulate you because you actually gave uh one piece of simple advice normally we get two or three or four pieces of simple advice and not one so think about that why about why are we doing it and then make sure pe teachers have time to collaborate and make sense of this and to then translate it into specific practices, specific roles and, and goals. And you mentioned there about different assessment types and um, you know, in, in, in another podcast, we might get underneath kind of some of those different nuances of assessment. That comes up. I think schools are having to think about how do we assess this well and meaningfully, but I think you've given us lots to think about. So okay. thank you for your time, Nikki. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm delighted to welcome um, my last guest, a former colleague known well. He's been on the podcast. If you're an avid listener, which I'm sure you are, he's been on, uh, I think, more than once. I'll double check that, Simon. Um, he's director, Simon Cox, director of Blackpool Research School, math teacher, school leader, extraordinaire. Um, and he's going to talk about um, talk, but I think there'll be an emphasis about what that might look like in secondary schools and, and what that might look like on a subject basis in the classroom. So, Simon, tell us a bit more about yourself and your background and, and then we'll get into this area. Yeah, thanks, Alex. So, uh, yeah, first and foremost, I'm a maths teacher, school leader, um, working currently in a, 
growing multi-academy trust in the file coast um but i'm also director of research school as you say and that gives me lots of opportunities to get out there work with other schools uh, really supporting them to put evidence into practice in a variety of different areas so literacy leadership disadvantage learning behaviors uh, metacognition maths of course um and and me and my team uh, work with with uh, quite a number of schools across the northwest um on supporting them and putting that evidence into practice uh, in in their settings look forward to hearing more about it Kirsten. Can you tell us a bit about um, your understanding of the importance of talk and maybe what started you thinking about this in your in your school? Yeah, so 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 as always, it's 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 the evidence really around um, you know what we should be doing in classrooms that that kind of led us to to focus on talk, um, and I think particularly from secondary in my experience i think it's a, an area that's been neglected a bit over recent years uh, but we know from the evidence base when we look at lots of different ef guidance reports i mean if, if we take the maths one for example that there's so there isn't an explicit recommendation around talk in there but there's lots of things in there around pupils uh, developing um, the ability to compare strategies that they've used to reflect on and communicate the problem solving strategies that they've used um, lots of regular opportunity to explain their thinking to others um, and i think there's lots of advantages that, that come out of that you know you end up with more confidence um, pupils one of the things that we often find is, is children can be really reluctant to commit things to their exercise books before they're absolutely sure it's correct and i think talk provides that opportunity to uh, really reflect on things discuss things without that kind of um fear of of getting it wrong almost which i know some children do have um so yeah lo lots of lots of discussion i think is important in classrooms but within the kind of structures that the teacher puts in place for that to happen so just you just talked about structures um and one of the um perhaps misconceptions around high quality talk will you know it's kind of it just it's not the teacher doing the work, it's everyone else is doing shared thinking and, and discussion. And although that, that's true, there's a, a structure, there's a support system, there's explicit teaching that builds that ability to do that well. But we can see where sometimes, you know, some teachers might feel inhibited by doing the kind of reflections and that, that kind of discussion because of, you know, behaviour management, other challenges like this. What do you see, might be your own teaching, might be your own school context around the challenges of promoting high quality talk in the classroom and, and then hopefully challenges, but how we surmount those challenges as well? Yes, so I think um, one of the things can be a lack of confidence on the teacher's part. I think maybe it hasn't been necessarily a focus of professional development over recent years, again, particularly in secondary. Um, but I think having absolute clarity over how you want the pupils to work in pairs or groups so when when they are discussing what what does that look like uh, what does it mean to talk in in your particular subject area how are you going to set that up I, I think there's this misconception that talk always has to be for a long period of time as well you know children are going to talk for 15 20 minutes it doesn't need to be like that at all it can be quick turn and talk talk partners you know structures like that that the teacher has developed, modelled and, and put in place um, in order to facilitate that talk. And I think initially that's really essential. Uh, children won't automatically have a discussion about mathematics uh, without that support of their teacher. And I think it's like any aspect of what we want to be ultimately independent work 
it, it starts with the teacher. There's that process to go through that transfer of responsibility from the teacher over to the students, which I think is is, is really important. Um, there's something as well around classroom culture um, that that kind of um, I don't want to use the word failure, but that that kind of um, feeling that it's okay to get things wrong, that we're going to have that general positive regard for opinions that the pupils express during that talk. Uh, and once they've got that kind of culture in place for that, um, I think, again, that really facilitates that that high quality classroom talk. Yes, there are behaviour challenges and that that's often one of the things that I hear um, most frequently, particularly from secondary teachers. But I think um, those structures that I've talked about, that modelling, having those structures in place, they they can go a long way to, to mitigating those behaviour challenges. What Once pupils know what's expected of them when they are talking, then that becomes much easier um, to manage. And, and I think the last thing I'd say there around, around some of the challenges is um, it's important to have activities that are actually worth talking about. I think it's got to be something that promotes discussion. Um, so as a maths teacher, you know, if I, if I stick a rectangle on the board and I've got the dimensions on there and it's like, what's the perimeter of this rectangle? That's not really worth talking about. You know, it, it, it has a really clear, obvious answer. Um, I, I need to set a task that actually promotes that discussion uh, and then have those structures in place for what that discussion is going to look like. It's so interesting to hear you talk about, I suppose, the the careful thought that needs to go into making talk effective in the classroom. And you talked about a real range of things there that, that I suppose as teachers we need to consider. Um, can you tell us perhaps a little bit more about, you, you talked about some of the different um, ways that you can structure talk. You talked about paired work, you know, the, the short nature of things and, and longer um, opportunities for talk as well. Could you maybe give us an example of, of how you might go about um, supporting pupils to use that in the classroom? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll give an example from our, our, our recent work, actually. So, so we've been involved in the last year or so in um, some trials into mathematical problem solving. We've worked with uh, 10 schools in the northeast and Cumbria. Um, and um, one of the things that we did initially was we we surveyed pupils about um, the frequency of opportunity that they had to do some of the things that we knew were important, so share methods, share decision making when they'd been solving mathematical problems. Um, and, and it's a small sample, but but we found that actually the frequency that that happened was, was not was not great. You know, it, it, a low proportion of pupils were, were reporting that that was a, a frequent feature of their maths lessons. Um, so, so what we did is, is we worked with those um, teachers and schools to, to think about structures that would support that. Um, so it started with teacher modelling. Um, pupils need to hear um, the way the teacher, the way an expert mathematician would structure their talk. They're talking about the way they solved a problem, not just what they did, but why they did it. And then they need to hear that pupil so that when they are asked to talk, they, they, they've got that kind of model uh, in mind for, for what good talk looks like. Um, we then set up a system where um, they would they did it in pairs, actually. So it was talk partners. Uh, once they had solved a mathematical problem, they would have a, a short period of time. And again, this had been modelled by the teacher to turn, talk to their partner, explain your reasoning. Uh, I think one of the things we do in maths constantly is tell children to show they're working out. Uh, but actually, we don't always ask them to talk about their working out to explain what they've done and why they've done it. So again, we modelled that and we gave them prompt questions. 
so that they had really clear guidelines and if they weren't confident they could turn to their prompt questions they could use those um, and they could use that to, to structure that discussion whilst that was happening the teacher circulated listened for those really high quality sort of nuggets of mathematical conversation and then brought attention to those so then when, when they brought the class back together um, they highlighted some really effective discussion that they'd heard crucially it wasn't always from children who'd got the answer right you know it was it was children who'd really discussed the reasoning well um, and they sometimes invited them up to the front to discuss with the class stuck their work under a visualizer that kind of thing but again what, what we noticed is that by the end of the the 10 week trial that, that we that we did that the, the um there being a real culture change in the classroom so, so from classrooms where actually very little talk was happening and um, the children really didn't feel confident talking about mathematics uh, just within that short time period with those structures in place they became much more confident at, at expressing verbally what they had been doing and why they had been doing it can i just ask what, what were the teacher perceptions of that because that feels like a quite significant change did they feel like it was improving things changing things in, in, and, in, and in what ways yeah, ab absolutely they did. Um, so, um, I mean, these were all schools that had made the decision to sign up to this trial. So, so they were kind of on board um, initially. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was a, the, the, the teachers, I mean, some were a little bit, a little bit reluctant at first. It was a little bit outside their comfort zone. And I think those structures really helped with that. You know, it wasn't just um, us saying, well, we'd like you to talk more in the classroom. I, I don't think that's helpful to be honest i don't think that really, really supports teachers in knowing what to do uh, but because those structures were there um that they, they um w were really speaking very highly of the, the approach by the end of that period and even though they didn't need to lots of those teachers expressed that they were going to continue with that beyond the end of the trial because they'd seen such a shift in the the pupils attitude towards um discussion in mathematics which i think was really mm. effective mm. so I'm not a mathematician, uh, Simon, as you as you well know. Um, I've spent a lot of time observing science lessons, maths lessons, lessons that I'm I'm less familiar with. So often the quality of talk for me, it's hard for me to, to distinguish. I'm not quite an expert. One of the things it felt like when I did observe talk in maths classrooms, and and, and I I would put it alongside science classrooms, is that the talk allowed teachers to kind of identify misconceptions. You talked about the, they didn't always get the right answer. I think sometimes there's this kind of, you know, they can fluently answer quite a few questions and then they start getting stuck and they get it wrong, but they'll kind of secretly kind of pass on the right answer. Is there something about talk which can elicit those misconceptions and is helpful in that way, but then also if you don't quite get it right, it might foster misconceptions because pupils are just sharing, you know, kind of poor strategies or. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's where the teacher circulating becomes really important. I think you really need to listen carefully for what pupils are talking about because you're right. I think that that can be an issue. But I also think that there's there's that task design comes in quite strongly here. So, so if you carefully design uh, a task um, in maths, but in lots of other subjects as well, I'm sure, um, so that you are 
you're aware as the teacher of what misconceptions are likely to emerge from that task and, and it can be tricky to design tasks like that but I think that's really valuable because then you can um, you know you can listen out for those misconceptions that you know are likely to come up and you can highlight them but then even if they don't come up you can then you know talk to the class about okay if somebody had done this why do you think they might have made that mistake so, so I do think um, I, I think that Again, when we talk about talk uh, as kind of, you know, unstructured children having free reign to talk in, in class, um, I think there's a real danger there that those misconceptions can can emerge and then and, and then you, you don't pick up on them. But I think with the structures in place and that, you know, circulating the classroom, really carefully listening into what those uh, children are talking about. I think that then you can you can minimise that, but actually, actually, you can you can really pick up on those misconceptions and um, and use them as a teaching point. And you talked about different curriculum areas. I've got a question about, so assessment uh, has come up. So Nikki talked about thinking about assessment because they've got an entire curriculum to span and they really wanted to develop you know, kind of skills of listening and, and, and structured talk. And, and actually, we started with Professor Neil Mercer. He also talked about there's something about prioritising talk and assessment comes along with that. I wondered, is maths a place where talk should be formally assessed does it need that structure is that for other aspects of the curriculum you think what, what's your thoughts on on assessment is it about for you assessing the maths and talk is almost the the route towards high quality mathematical understanding or are kind of skills about working with others and kind of and listening and, and being able to reason verbally are those things you think should be assessed in addition and or differently i'm i'm not convinced they should be explicitly assessed um, in, in the maths classroom. I, I, th I think that the, the maths that is being talked about for me is is, is more important than the actual um, talk itself necessarily. Um, I, I do think though that there is a place for um, mathematical assessment through talk. So, so again, I come back to task design and, and I, I know that there's some great resources released recently from the NCTM, the checkpoint resources, which are exactly that. They are um, they are tasks which are designed to be discussed in class and they are formative assessment tasks where the teacher can circulate and pick out um, sort of the, 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 the pupil's current level of mathematical understanding. Um, I think too frequently we think of assessment as being something that has to be written, has to be done in silence, has to be formal and obviously there's a place for that um, but there's also a place for, for much less formal assessment where we are mm. um, we're setting those discussion tasks again not necessarily a long period of time just a few minutes uh, and really picking up on those things that pupils are saying finding out what they know mathematically uh, and just as importantly what they don't know uh, and then using that as a as a as a point to continue teaching from so uh, i don't think i i personally wouldn't be looking to assess talk as a separate entity in the maths classroom but i would be looking mm. to assess that the, the mathematics that came out of that talk uh, that's really useful i i i think again this is about strategic thinking about how we teach how we assess and not arbitrarily kind of foisting on across the curriculum specific approaches so i think that's really helpful and, and also i'm sure you know, colleagues listening if you're from a primary background or secondary or you're a drama teacher or english teacher you're bringing your own different notions of what assessment is necessary at different stages and, and phases so i think that's really helpful um to, to go from that that's a really rich picture you've described about practice and, and assessment and working with schools and working in your classroom um we often try and make the final question 
to really simplify things and distill things. Uh, so I'm going to ask you, uh, what one piece of simple advice would you want teachers and other educators to consider when thinking about developing high quality talk in their classrooms or settings? Um, so I'd be thinking, what do you want talk to look like? Um, and how are you going to model that to the pupils? And how are you going to put those structures in place to ensure that talk looks how you want it to look? And, and it's going to look different in different subject areas. Uh, it's going to look different in different phases. I, I'm not sure that it really matters exactly which kind of structure you choose. I think it matters that you have a structure and that you work to that. But I think just really carefully considering whether that's a, as an individual teacher of the department what is talk going to look like in my classroom how do i model that and how do i structure that and how do i explicitly teach the pupils almost how to become good talkers in my subject area so i think that will be my uh, my top tip there is don't think it will happen naturally because as with many things in the classroom it, it, it won't um, you're going to need to think really carefully about how you structure that Thanks so much, um, Simon. It's been brilliant hearing your reflections and, and there's there's a lot for me to think about and I'm sure um, for, for the listeners as well. Um, so thanks very much for your time and for joining us today. Uh, that was really interesting to have you know that that broad span. So from that Neil's kind of big picture perspective, we almost had the history of, of talk and oracy um, in, in a few short minutes, but also thinking about its importance, its relevance, for, for different pupils, for different school types, you know, so much in there. And then we, we went to Nikki and, and that primary context and having to think about a whole curriculum, that kind of foundational development of, of young children and kind of being able to talk and, and, and work together and then also kind of think about how you might assess that. And then we get to Simon, which is kind of with those older students in secondary school and how talk just seems so integral to the maths classroom um, what what are your kind of reflections after hear, hearing all of that? I think that for me, what came across really strongly across all three um, guests is, is how important it is to be really um, purposeful and strategic and how talk is used. So um, Professor Mesa talked really um, strongly about, about the need to 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 balance, I suppose, teacher talk and pupil talk, but to then scaffold that that pu that pupil talk and, and teach how group work um, needs to look to be effective. Um, and Nikki talked um, about um, that that from a school perspective in terms of that that overview, that strategic planning of progression and, and opportunities for talk, building it into the curriculum. And then Simon also brought that down to, to the classroom level and talked about the importance of task design and what we need to do as teachers to you know use questions to to prompt and, and the role of the teacher in kind of monitoring and and highlighting those really strong examples of talk modeling it in the first place so to me it was all of those different facets i suppose of, of the teachers and school leaders role in really ensuring that talk is high quality and it is um supporting yeah. learning that yeah. really stood out yeah that that phrase high quality talk that that term high quality feels like it was characterized and that's what we need to characterize and simon made that point about what does it look like in your classroom mm -hmm. that stood out for me that sounds hopeful although some questions there so think about um if you've not listened to our back catalog um there's lots of um, interesting podcasts you might pick up on other aspects of literacy um, lots of interesting areas thank you for following and listening see you again soon